Be good. <laughs> Well, hello there, listener. Thanks for tuning in. This is your pal, Andrew, coming to you from Yucca Valley, California. I'm back together with my wife, Tiffany, and our little dog, Pele. We're currently uh, on break from traveling, and we're doing some work uh, to sort of fund the next leg of our journey as we work our way south towards Argentina. In the meantime, uh, we are so fortunate to continue to meet incredibly just fun, interesting, cool, thoughtful people, not unlike our guest today, who I'm so happy to bring you, Mr. Tao Ruspoli, who um, we met through our mutual friend, Chris Ryan, Dr. Christopher Ryan, the host of Tangentially Speaking podcast and author of uh, Sex at Dawn. And the upcoming book, Civilized to Death, uh, man, that guy has been awfully good to old Tiffany and I. Um, and this introduction is just another in a series of kind things that guy has done for us. Let me tell you about Tao. Uh, Tao is a filmmaker. He's an incredible photographer, a fantastic musician, uh, an amazing Airbnb host. Uh, we we're actually at his home as I speak um, we recorded this episode with him, I don't know, almost a month ago. Uh, we've just, we've had just an amazing time hanging out with Tao and getting to know him, um, getting to know his property and all the many things that he's got going on. He's, uh, hired me to help him out with a thing called the Bombay Beach Biennale, which uh, you'll hear a lot about in this episode, a very articulate explanation of exactly what that's about. Um, and yeah, you'll hear about Tao's films, about his family, um, it was a fantastic conversation and one that I, I feel privileged to be able to share with you out there, my friends and strangers. Uh, so yeah, thanks. Enjoy this one. Uh, I'm going to say just a couple of quick things. If you want to skip ahead a few minutes, if you don't care about uh, what I have to say and you just want to hear Tao, I don't blame you. He's coming up in just a few minutes. But if you just want to hear um, uh, about things going on in the world that we know about, then this is your opportunity to do exactly that. One. The Motherfucker Awards is Tuesday, today, the 4th of December in Inglewood. If you haven't gotten tickets already, I don't know, you're probably screwed, but you can help out. You can hop on Instagram and find out who the winners of Motherfucker Awards are. Now, the Motherfucker Awards, if you want to look that up, um, just dial in on Google, Motherfucker Awards. It'll take you straight there, but it's uh, it's a sort of mock award show that is honoring the companies who've done the most to sort of fuck over our planet. And uh, it's going to be hosted by uh, Kyle Tierman and, uh, and Dr. Christopher Ryan. And many fantastic journalists are going to be sort of informing and prompting everyone on, on what the categories are and what they're about. Uh, for instance, like there's a fire category or a water category or a land category, mind category. And uh, comedians will come out and accept the awards on behalf of of the winners. Um, it should be really funny. There's gonna be like Natasha Leggero, uh, the Yes Men will be there, Moshe Kasher, uh, and great uh, journalists like uh, Abby Martin and Matt Taibbi. Anyway, it's, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, 
And what you can do to participate is to go online when you find out who has won an award. You can congratulate them in a civil way, saying, hey, at whoever company you want to reference, uh, congratulations on winning a MOFA. And that's it. And maybe these companies will have to respond to having won motherfucker awards. Okay, that's that. Um, I want to say a huge thank you to all our patrons. Um, every Patreon donation that we got for the month of November, we're going to slide over to uh, California Fire Relief Aid because those folks really, really need it. I felt a little weird taking money uh, for our self-indulgent journey while there were people suffering. And there still really are. I mean, just so many people suffering everywhere. But um, anyhow, we're going to we are asking for continued Patreon support, but last month's support is going directly to the aid of, of those poor folks who got so desperately screwed over by wildfire. Okay, uh, that's that's all I'm going to say for now, because I really want to get on, get on with it and get you to our guest, Mr. Tao Ruspoli. Uh, if you want to see a picture of Tao, you can go on our Instagram page, or you can go to mtp.dog and look at the uh, listen to podcast page. You'll see a beautiful picture of a beautiful man Tao Ruspoli and you'll see links to every song that we played uh, a lot of the things that we referenced uh, the link to the Bombay Beach Biennale will be there and uh, yeah it's worth checking out all right that's enough of me here he comes Mr. Tao Ruspoli thanks Tao thank you I mean thanks for the podcast but thanks for making us immediately feel like one welcome guests and friends like i just immediately felt like we were pals well that doesn't happen with everyone obviously but we just had an immediate yeah. connection and i felt really uh great energy from you and was wanted more so yeah. here we are like, <laughs> several days after meeting still hanging out still hanging out it, uh... yeah it's um it's a pleasure and we've been on a quest for interesting people you know, and typically what I find interesting are things I just don't know anything about, you know, and, and I'm sort of in the dark on. And you live in an interesting intersection of things I know just nothing about, I think. Uh, one, uh, your family heritage, the Italian aristocracy sort of thing. I know nothing about that. Um, and that's been a huge part of your life. Uh, you live in the desert. And spend a lot of your time in Bombay Beach, which is a whole other world that I don't quite understand. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think a lot about philosophy, and but I don't really understand it. And I don't know that anyone necessarily does. But you have, you know, had the, the foresight to make a film about philosophy. And you've studied it. Uh, you've, uh, your music, musical understanding is, is outside of what I know. And your grasp on human sexuality is outside of what I know. So I'm, I'm, I'm very um, curious to talk to you about <laughs> all those things. Well, it's funny. All of these things, as you list them off, were, are things that are mysterious to me as well. And why that the reason I'm interested in them is that I think they're just uh, endlessly, endlessly mysterious. And there, there's no, there's no reaching a, a complete understanding of yeah. of them. And so there are interesting things to to contend with and dialogue with. Yes, I, I agree. So let's start with the with your family. I mean, what's tell me about your family? Well, we talked about this yesterday. I, I feel lucky not to be defined by my family heritage 
And that's thanks to the fact that my parents split up when I was eight years old and I came to live in LA with my single mom and my little brother and we had a very normal you know, middle-class existence. And then every summer I'd go back and see my dad who lived in this castle, which has been in my family since 1531. And the family goes back even farther to the year 800 in a straight line, firstborn son, firstborn son, all the way to my father and my older brother and now my older brother's little son. So it's an incredible history. But it also, I find that the, in contrast with the desert where we are now, which is an open canvas. And what I love about it is it's this like absolute ability to invent your own reality and, and existence. Um, This like weighty past, I think it, it often like stops people from being able to really do anything because you just feel so overwhelmed by the, just the magnitude of what happened before you. And I think that, uh, People joke that in Rome, you know, it's like one of the only places in the in the world where you can just do nothing and be a respectable member of society. And that's because it's just normal for a lot of people to just like, I think, be overwhelmed by what preceded them. How can you be an architect when you have the Colosseum and the Pantheon and, you know, <laughs> m- m- Renaissance churches and like, what, what kind of arrogance do you need to be able to compete with that, right? Yeah. And... Uh, and so I think what happens is it just you know the, it just stifles people, uh, and so so I I I have this the luck to to have uh, I've been able to be a visitor to it, mm-hmm. and a regular visitor, and enough that I was able to like really be in it, but not in it so much that it that it that it overwhelmed me. Yeah, and so I also just got to appreciate my my father. You know, my father himself was who was like a, such an extraordinary figure. And, you know, I didn't even realize how well-known he was until he died. And, like, it was on the front page of every newspaper in Italy. And I thought, you know, I knew that it would be, like, mentioned. But I didn't think it would be, like, you know, front-page news. And, you know, and he's one of these people who did next to nothing. He would say that. He would joke himself about He'd say, every time I go to America, people ask me, what do you do? And I say, about what? (laughs) (laughs) And and they say, about work. And he says, I haven't had time to work. (laughs) What a great series of answers to those questions. <laughs> so, uh, so he, but he got over. I think a little overwhelmed by by it, um, and rebelled against it in interesting ways because he was born in 1924. His father, my grandfather, was born in the only year you had to fight in both world wars. So, uh, born in 1899. Oh wow! And uh, so his father was very militaristic and then fascistic mm-hmm. and he by nature was the opposite of that and his mother died when he was nine years old and so mm-hmm. he kind of started out very rebellious and i remember him telling me he was almost uh, arrested because he was speaking against mussolini in a bar when he was like 15 years old wow. and only because he was his father's son did he not get locked up for like wow. You know, they, they, they turned a blind eye because his father by this time was like a colonel in the Italian army. Wow. So he just, he had this, you know, uh, his his mother died when he was nine. And then he World War II happened from when he was, you know, 15 to 19 or something like that. And then uh, his mother had been a, 
a very wealth come from a very wealthy uh, Brazilian family. So after World War II, he went to Brazil with his little brother. They were like 21 and 19, and they inherited this huge fortune, which uh, he came back to Italy with and kind of started what became later known as La Dolce Vita, you know, yeah. immortalized by Fellini. Yes. And he just had this, he said, you know, seeing his mother die, seeing his, uh, the, you know, the World War II and all the devastation made, gave him this kind of attitude of like, the, everything could end tomorrow. Let's just live as if today is all there is. Yeah. And also, I don't think he wanted to be defined by his past. And, and so he just was reinventing himself constantly and just kind of the living with this exuberance and this recklessness that is kind of unimaginable. I mean, he squandered like a thousand years of family fortune in, in one lifetime and he did it with great style too. Yeah. Cause he also inherited like an amazing sense of elegance and which he wore so deeply that it never felt like an affectation. That's wonderful. Um, anyway, I could go on talking about this for a long time. No, so. <laughs> I, I'm loving it. I, I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned um, yesterday, like how the Italian aristocracy even came to be. Yeah, um, the the uh, the Vatican had uh, uh, you know several families that would support it with financial and military. Uh, you know, there were these families that had the ability to give money and soldiers and just basically prop up the uh, the worldly power of the church. And in exchange, they would get uh, titles and kingdoms, not, not kingdoms, uh, you know, fiefdoms, fiefdoms and, yeah. and uh, principalities, I guess you'd call yeah. them. And uh, and so my, my father was the 16th count of Vignanello, which is where we have the castle. Mm -hmm. And then about eight generations ago, there was a guy who was not satisfied with being count because it wasn't the highest title that you could get. And he had very, he was very wealthy, had inheritance from all four grandparents. And so he became the patron of Handel, the great uh, the Baroque composer. And uh, he was intent on getting a higher title. And so he kept like currying favor with the with the Pope and eventually ended up giving a regiment of 10,000 soldiers of a mercenary army. And at that point in 1703, he became Prince, which is the highest title you could get be conferred from the Vatican of another town where we still have a, you know, palace like outside of Rome called Cerveteri. So my father was the 16th count of Vignanello where we have the castle and the eighth prince of Cerveteri. And my, my, uh, but he kept, as I mentioned, he kept selling off kind of the family properties. And fortunately, his younger brother, who's still alive and 91 years old, was a kind wow. of more responsible, hardworking guy. And he would buy the, the most important possessions. So the castle has stayed in the family, wow. even though my father, he sold, he sold it to his younger brother. That's incredible. <laughs> That's so incredible. So your mother, what was she doing in Italy?
So that's a great story. My, my mom was, uh, grew up in, in Los Angeles and her father had run off when she was very young and he had, had lived a very kind of buttoned down 1950s existence, uh, but then felt really stifled by it. And he went, he just one day just left everything and he went to Italy and became a spaghetti Western star of all things. He ended up starring in like over a hundred films really? of like, like B movies, like, you know, like uh, those inexpensive Westerns that they would shoot like so frequently in the sixties and seventies yeah. and eighties. And, um, so my mother grew up kind of hearing that her father was this terrible man and who had just left them. And, but she didn't really relate to her mother. So she knew that maybe there was something more there. Mm -hmm. And so when she was about 15, she dropped out of high school and went to Italy and met her father uh, and found out he was a wonderful man, despite the fact that he had abandoned his responsibilities somewhat. But they got along really well, and uh, and her father was friends with my father, and actually my father was older than my grandfather, which I was got a kick out of saying, <laughs> telling people, <laughs> and uh, and so she met you know my dad when she was sixteen, and he was almost fifty, and uh, of course at the time it wasn't quite as sure scandalous or illegal, but it was you know certainly not normal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so when she was 17 uh, and my dad was 49, I, uh, they conceived me. And then my father loved the Far East. He was an opium addict for 45 years and lived in Thailand and had his residence in Laos for a long time. And so he took my mom there where he was friends with like the, the cousin of the king of Thailand and the son of the king of Laos. And so they were just hanging out in these amazing places and smoking opium and and they and I was born in Bangkok in 1975. Wow, do you have a like many passports? How many passports are you? No, on? I just have I just have Italian and and American. There's no birthright citizenship in Thailand. So. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so your your mom and your dad. Do you have other siblings from that coupling or? The, yes. Yeah. So my father had one son before me. Uh, who's now 50 years old and lives in Italy, married with two children. And then she, he had my, uh, me and my little brother, Bartolomeo, mm -hmm. Meo for short, Meo. who lives uh, in LA. And he's a real character. He's tattooed from the face down. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, and, then, and then when my father was 70, he had been dating this lovely French model who was in her 20s and uh, called me one day and like said, I'm getting married. And he was 70 and his girlfriend was 30. And I said, oh, wow, amazing. And then like two months later, they called and said, uh, he called and said, we're having a baby. And I, so then my little sister, Melusine, was born. I was 20 and my dad was 70 and his wife was 30. And and then I remember going to meet them in Paris and and uh, my, uh, my dad, I asked him like, are you gonna have more children? And he said, Tao, let me live my youth, maybe in a few years. <laughs> and I thought he was kidding, but he was he was serious because three years later they had another one. So now I have a wonderful little brother and sister who are in their early twenties. And they live in Italy. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. It's pretty great. It's yeah. pretty great. And he said, "Oh, you're going to be so happy when you're 40." And I was like, "When it's so weird, weird thing to tell a 20 year old." Yeah. But it's sure enough, uh, it, it's great. Came like, to pass. I'm kind of like a half uncle brother you know yeah. to these wonderful kids yeah you can uh be in a mentor from afar in a cool way i mean you've try to be <laughs> yeah just i mean 
it's hard to not be a product of your your parents yeah. you know, it's just uh, whether you rebel against them or you follow their path they've they've shaped you and yeah it sounds like with your folks and the way that you grew up you've um, you're untethered by expectation you know that if anything there's maybe an expectation on you to just be yourself and that's th- about as far as it goes i think that's right yeah i think my parents like raised me with an ethos of 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 seeking authenticity and my own path and i mean my name means the path right so we take on our yeah that's our names a little bit very much so yeah of course mine means strong and manly as you can tell that's you know <laughs> just maybe my parents had a sense of irony who knows so uh i want to get back to uh that that shaping of you and what you kind of are seem like i mean you've got a very much uh, a style and you're very stylistic and you uh like yesterday we went shopping with you uh at, at secondhand thrift stores or vintage stores and you're uh you've got a flair and like a, a sensibility of, of fun and excitement and and just good taste i think whatever Thanks. you know you were saying your father <laughs> stop some more yeah <laughs> your father you know it's clearly imparted that sort of sense of style upon you but um you're doing that, like you said, on this blank canvas of the desert. I mean, we've spent some time in Bombay Beach at, at the Institute, which is a hilarious canvas because that place is so fucked. Yeah. I mean, just so catastrophically, uh, <laughs> ecologically fucked. I mean, uh, we've so we've been traveling for many months and have been in just fresh, open air places from Alaska to you know, Wyoming. And you get down there, and I, I did not feel like I got a fresh breath of air the whole time I was there, but it was so fun. And so you can just feel all this creative energy that's coming upon this place that's been just set upon by tragedy and failure. I mean, it's such an amazing place. Like, I, 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 I'm a you know photographer and, an exp- and filmmaker and, f- and explorer by nature. Yeah. And I was in a bookstore about 10 years ago, and I see this book that's like about the Salton Sea. And I'm like, what the, what's that? You know, and you said it was like a, a rotting trailer on the cover. And I've always been into like vintage trailers and, mm-hmm. you know, Americana. And I'm like, how have I never heard of this place? And then I look at the back and it was like the largest body of water in California. And I'm like, what? Yeah. And like most people, because I, I've now talked to many people since then, I didn't know this place existed. And it's like three hours from LA. And, and, and there's this environmental catastrophe happening and this weird, kooky, like, uh, historic, historic, like, accident that happened there. The, the sea was formed by accident. They say it's the only accident you can see from space. And uh, there was a, they were damming the Colorado River to bring water to Southern California in the early 1900s. And uh, I think in 1905, there was a breach in the dam and they couldn't control this flooding. And for three years, the entire contents of the Colorado River spilled into this basin, which was like, it's like Death Valley. It's below sea level. It's like 250 feet below sea level. Mm. So... It has historically, you know, over the eons had water in it before, uh, but it hadn't for many millennia. And uh, and suddenly you had this giant body of water that was formed and a bunch of developers thought, wow, there's an opportunity here to have like Palm Springs with 
water. water. <laughs> and so they built all these little towns around and uh, and said it was the miracle of the desert. And they had, uh, you know, these amazing like 1950s uh, ads, uh, films that they were putting out there of like, you could own a little piece of this paradise by buying a little plot of land in Salton City, which is like the city of the future. And, uh, you know, they were a little short-sighted because it's basically a giant puddle in the desert. Like there's no, there's no circulation, uh-uh. and uh, and suddenly they had to, they were had to contend with the fact that it was evaporating. So then there's all this agriculture around there, and so they were watering all the 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 the, the, the crops there, and they used the runoff of the agriculture to keep this thing full they put fish in there and the fish started multiplying like crazy tilapia and corvina fish and suddenly you had literally hundreds of millions of fish in this like weird closed ecosystem and and then the the temperature would get really high and the, the ground there is full of salt so the, the salt would seep into the water until it got saltier and saltier and saltier now it's like twice as salty as the ocean and uh, the fish somehow adapted to like their freshwater fish and they like adapted to live in salt water. So there's like these like freshwater fish living in salt water. But then when the temperature would rise above a certain level, some you'd get these fish die offs, which sometimes were like 10 million fish would die in one day. Oh and then they would just wash ashore and cause this stench like that you could smell for miles around like all the way to palm springs like 50 miles away you could smell the salton sea so everyone left but not everyone like a few people stayed and and so like the, and then the towns like the weirdest one is called bombay beach and it's like on the eastern shore so it's the farthest the most removed from like everyday existence and uh american existence and mm-hmm. And, and but it's also very American. It's like this like 1950s dream of like the American dream gone str- terribly awry, right? And you've got this uh, this little town called Bombay Beach. And and people don't know why it's called Bombay Beach, and that's another weird story. They they was they used to fly practice runs to drop the bomb on Nagasaki over the Salton Sea, and there's still dummy bombs of like Fat Boy, which is the name of the the, the bomb that yeah. they dropped on Nagasaki in the bottom of the sea, supposedly. And one legend says that you would see the planes flying over and the the bays of the bomb bays would open up to drop the bombs and that's why it's called bombay beach (laughs) it's just so nutty and it's just like this perfect little grid so anyway i I got in my car when i saw this book i'm like i've got to go see this place and it's just like everything that i i love you know like trailers and and uh you know desert and you know vintage americana and and then just like and then just marginalized people and existence and you know characters and so so i i I drove around the sea by myself and just started taking pictures stumbled on this town and i was like this is so cool like this is like a little it's like a thousand lots in a perfect square 90 percent of them are abandoned like rotting airstream trailers and and then like 200 like eccentric people still living there and one bar called the Ski Inn, which after a while you realize it's because they used to water ski on there. But at first you're like, why is this place called the Ski Inn? <laughs> There's no skiing anywhere here. And um, and so I was married at the time and I would, uh, uh, you know, tell my wife, like, I think we should buy a house in Bombay Beach. <laughs> and she's like, are you fucking crazy? Like, why would we want to buy a place in that shithole, you know? And I'm like, I don't know, it's just fascinating and interesting and weird and like... 
you know, and the house cost like a used car, you know, like they yeah. couldn't even give them away. So I got divorced in 2011. And the first thing I did was buy a house in Bombay beach. And, um, and then I started dreaming of this idea of bringing a, a festival to, because I would always see people shooting there. Like there was, be, there's like, it's kind of a hipster paradise in a way. Like you'd see like people uh, uh, doing music videos or fashion shoots. And, but the place was so weird and so far gone that no one thought to even spend the night there, you know? So they would just basically take from the place but not give anything back and not have it. So I was like, this sucks that this place has nothing to show, not even a photo on the wall celebrating like all the creativity that it inspires. Yeah. So I thought there should be something that celebrates this place. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm Italian as we've discussed. And there's a, a um, one of the most important art festivals in the world, if not the most important is called the Venice Biennale. And uh, it's been going on since 1895, I think. And, you know, it's international high art. And I thought, you know, Bombay Beach Biennale has a really nice absurd ring to it. (laughs) But it just was kind of like a a joke. Like, I didn't really think that it would be possible until I uh, ended up partnering up with uh, two amazing people, Stefan Ashkenazi, who owns the Petit Hermitage Hotel in West Hollywood. And he's a mad visionary. And uh, I've known him since the seventh grade. And he did a camp at Burning Man uh, called Cirque Gitan, Gypsy Circus. Gypsy circus yeah. And uh, on, on the fifth night of, the, of Burning Man, when most people are just reduced to eating canned food out of, you know, and just scraping together what they have left for them, for, you know, from being in the desert for all that time, Stefan threw a black tie dinner for a hundred people where like, Susan Sarandon had brought like a vial of Timothy Leary's ashes and they were sprinkled in everyone's drinks. And we like ended up drinking the Timothy Leary's ashes, which I call it an act of like psychedelic necrophiliac cannibalism. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so we, uh, so I went to this camp uh, at Burning Man and reconnected with my old friend. And I thought, Oh my God, he's like, He's perfect for bombay beach <laughs> and sure enough he had been told about bombay beach by several other people uh his girlfriend and a dear friend of his had been telling him about bombay beach and he'd been wanting to start some sort of alternative festival and and he had the the wherewithal and the, and the means to do this and yeah. and then i had another dear friend at the time named lily uh johnson white from the johnson and johnson family and she sits on the board of a bunch of art organizations and is inter- interested in public art and patronage patronage and and so the three of us like concocted this idea over like a, a decadent Thanksgiving dinner in Bombay Beach, and um, and 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 the Biennale Year Zero was born in in two thousand and fifteen. Was it or sixteen? We're gonna be the. This the, was the third, right? This was the third, yeah, yeah in two thousand eighteen. So two thousand sixteen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that, that, I covered that's a, a lot of ground. No, that's but great. That's great. You feed me this like very strong coffee, so it's making me. Uh... <laughs> it's normally me, so I'm glad it's someone else. <laughs> but I, I wanted to just kind of track back. You said something about. Well, you mentioned the fish, the, the like that rapid evolution in the fish, that adaptation to uh, to salt water, you know, mm-hmm. from the fresh, and that you referred to that one place as the city of the future. It almost seems like Bombay and uh, Salton City evolved rapidly like those fish to accurately represent what could be a future for all cities you know just this fucked by the environmental catastrophe that we've just been sort of 
building shit on top of for decades and decades. You know, so it, it's got these weird parallels with the with the fish and the actual That's evolution really of the yeah. the town into this like it's a sort of accelerated. This is a, a direction we could be headed. So yeah, it's like, it lays bare the, what 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 could go wrong. Yeah, because it did. Yeah, and like you know, people talk about environmental. The, you know, one one problem with the focus on global warming, which of course is dire and essential, it can uh, distract sometimes from local environmental issues, which are very immediate, very real, and mm. very. Uh, much uh, solvable. Yeah, they're accessible in a way that the, the abstract concept of the entire globe warming in a way is not. You can't exactly. quite get your hand around it. So sometimes I, th- I think people need to like think about that as well. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, most people, yeah, you talk to people in LA, they're all ta- they're, they're, they all wring their hands in despair about global warming. Mm-hmm. But here you've got this like environmental catastrophe right next door, which is happening and giving like, you know, some of the highest asthma rates in the country because now the sea is drying up and it's leaving this toxic dust mm-hmm. and it's, you know, making kids and 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 old people sick and it's it you know birds that, that depend on those fish for their migrator migration they're they all dying yeah. and it's just like a you know a, such a mess and yeah. one of our main reasons for the biennale besides the fun of like bringing art to the desert is to like bring attention to this to yeah. this issue which is so real and so uh, desperate and urgent sleeping in the valley Valley of ill fortune, waking across the river, river of delusion. Full moon of the waves, waves of desperation, empty hearts and mouths without a way. Close your eyes, slow. There are a number of pitched solutions that I say it's been like a sort of a quest of fucked up solutions yeah. in that thing. But it seems like there are a few things that could actually work. Yeah, a couple billion dollars we just need. Cut, yeah, that's all. You know, <laughs> but they're worth trying, you know. Absolutely. And there's no, we've got the money. There's so yeah. much money. Trillions and trillions of dollars are shifting hands. We, we met with a guy who wrote a book called The Clean Money Revolution. Um, he lives uh, in Cortez Island. Brilliant dude, very very interesting character, and he talked about the, the the sort of the cognitive shifts that are coming and this giant transfer of wealth that's going to happen from old stodgy conservative people to younger people who are going to hopefully be exposed to things like the Bombay Beach Biennale and and sort of higher minded. Hey, we are going to die. Let's try to make things nice and have a good time and do do fun and interesting things. So, I, I think what you're doing is very important, and it it, it in its way will help direct a more responsible shift of that of that currency or of that that wealth it's going to go from you know a stingy pocket to a more liberal 
interesting pocket, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. So tell me about the uh, the festival. You've got artists from all over the world, speakers. You've got, uh, and it's not just art. I mean, our mutual friend Chris spoke there about uh, sexuality. Um, you've got you've got plenty of other things going on than just art installations. Right? Yeah, the idea was to like bring all the things you would the last things in the world you'd expect to see in a place like this. So we did a philosophy conference. I studied philosophy at Berkeley, and I've always been passionate about philosophy just because I'm curious what the fuck is going on <laughs> why are we here um and we um so i thought it would be fun to have a I've, I've i have a very dear friend who was getting his phd at berkeley when i was an undergraduate there and he's now a professor at oxford and uh i brought him to bombay beach and i was like what would it take to make a philosophy conference here and he kind of like looked bewildered <laughs> and now you know we've done each year like a serious academic conference in uh and brought like philosophers including him but uh you know like robert pippin who's a big deal philosopher at the university of chicago and uh krista mercer who's a, yeah. a professor at columbia university and just great thinkers and and philosophy tends to be academic which is the problem with it, I think. It like just like philosophers talking arguing with each other. And it's the uh, the philosophers have all been very grateful for the opportunity to be forced to like make their ideas resonate with, you know, p- the non-specialized audiences. So that's yeah. what they have to do, like speak to a fellow professors and Bombay Beach locals. And yeah. uh and we contend with interesting issues like uh the when uh, last year the theme was the way the future used to be yeah i love that so that fits with bombay beach like it it was a future that didn't happen right Mm -hmm. um or didn't happen the way it was expected so my friend mark for example gave a talk about why are ruins so appealing to us and in a way they they represent a ruptured past a ruptured future that yeah. didn't happen the way it was expected to. Because if it did, the, the ruins wouldn't be ruins. They'd be yeah. fixed up be and, <laughs> and they would be still being used. Yeah. And so Bombay Beach is full of these ruins because um, the, the future didn't unfold the way people expected it to. Mm-hmm. So we have these, uh, I remember, do you remember that Pink Floyd song, Your Possible Past? Possible Past, yeah. From, from the final cut. So he, he he like started the lecture with playing that song. That's they great. flutter behind you your possible past. Yeah. Some bright-eyed and crazy, some uh, frightened and lost. And so the idea that we think of the past as already fixed, but um, but it's not right. Like mm-hmm. uh, because also the way that the way it does unfold is the way we then reinterpret the past. Right. So the past is a story that we tell. Yeah, very much. And it's very much dictated by the present. Mm-hmm. So this was like, a, a, I, I studied a lot of uh, existentialist philosophy and Heidegger and made a film about Heidegger called Being in the World. And and uh, the this idea of like uh, time, his his main book is called Being in Time and, and the idea of like, how do we exist? Uh, there's a kind of facile you know, new agey or, you know, pseudo Eastern philosophy of like, just be in the moment. like all there is is now. And I think that that's not true. Like we, we clearly are constantly in dialogue with our past and pressing into a possible futures and, and not knowing, you know, like, and, and thinking of ourselves in terms of what's happened. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's sure. but studying the structure of time is yeah. something that I've always been very interested in. And, and it's one of the issues that we've, contended with yeah. in a very real way in Bombay Beach. 
Well, you seem to, uh, yeah, you work in time, but you also work very much in story. You know, and like to, to conceive of time is a story. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are. We're a storytelling ape that has the capacity to believe shit that is not. Yeah. Yeah. That's our, one of our really unique characteristics that we can be convinced of things that are, you know, ideas, concepts. Yeah, I went to I went to a conference one on, once on the philosophy of creativity, and it was interesting. People were talking about like you know why human beings are creative and how are we creative and the different manifestations of our creativity. And one of the main one of the talks was about the way we are creative in narrativizing our own lives, mm-hmm. and we have these like you know universally accepted like chapter markers whether they're like graduations or marriages or funerals or divorces all of these things but we also are constantly kind of telling ourselves a story of like what is our life what do our lives mean yeah and it's a really interesting you know book that we're kind of both reading and writing (laughs) at the same time yeah just the the concept of self-doubt is such a it's such a story that you're, you know, every time you doubt yourself in some way, whether you're conscious of it or not, it's a, it's a story, you know. Yeah. Well, I want to get to your films because you, uh, you mentioned one, um, being in the world, but you've, you've done how many films now? I don't know. It's hard to count because there's some that are short, and uh, uh, you know, I started out making docu, like I've always just kind of obsessively documented the world around me, and mm-hmm. I was really into flamenco as a young man in college and I went to Spain and and would carry a little camera with me and was yeah. obsessed with finding authentic flamenco and and so that I made a, a film about that which became a little bit of a cult classic on YouTube called uh, Flamenco a Personal Journey because a lot of the people that I was documenting have since died and it represented it at the time that they used to say, Oh, flamenco's finished and it used to be, you know, more alive in the seventies, right. but now that's as far as that was. And it's become this kind of uh, uh, picture of a moment where the, the, the art was actually very, very much alive. And so I, I did that when I was in college and then, uh, you know, I, I lived in the school bus for a couple of years and we would travel around and make short films everywhere we went. And the idea was to kind of give the, uh, the, the on the school bus, I had a quote of Jean Cocteau who said, film will only become art when its materials are as inexpensive as pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that now with digital video, that's, that's finally a reality and we can like, uh, uh, but we weren't quite there yet. So I, we, we wanted to like kind of uh, help bring that eventuality to bear and we, yeah. we filled this school bus with editing systems and we traveled around the country like not only making films ourselves but also helping artists who were used to working in other media to make their first films mm-hmm. and so we worked with poets and musicians and uh painters and made you know dozens of short films in that yeah. time that was in the early 2000s and then i ended up getting married to this beautiful girl who uh ended up becoming a quite a well-known actress and we made a film together called fix mm-hmm. and uh that was my first and so far only like narrative feature film and then i made a being in the world oh i traveled with the bus across the country and made a, a film called behind the wheel which was like looking for the intersection of art and politics and like how mm-hmm. were people like who didn't have uh traditional uh, power politically how were they using the arts to kind of affect change and make their voices heard what year was that that was 2006 Ooh. and then uh, Bush 
right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> War in Iraq and everything. Yeah. And then uh, I made uh, Being in the World, and which is about Heidegger and about kind of about skillfulness and how we, uh, how does skillful behavior give meaning to our lives and this is i think a really interesting and very important topic still even more than ever and heidegger's idea was that when we engage skillfully with the world we um we show up as significant and the world shows up as significant and the best exam practical example of this is music so if you wanted to learn to play music in the old days you'd have to like learn an instrument and uh you would then maybe meet other people in your community that played the instruments that complemented your instrument. So say you're, you know, violin player and you, then you'd find like the other three members of a quartet and each of those uh, people would have their identity as the player of that instrument. And then you would meet at a particular time and in a particular place. And what that did is it made that particular time and that particular place acquire significance because eight o'clock on Thursday evening was different from, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon because that's the time you got to go and play and listen to music. And then the, the space you would, you would sit in would uh, have the significance of being the place where the music sounded best. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if you contrast that with, uh, you know, listening to music on your phone, uh, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what time it is. And so all of life tends to get leveled. So there's a great, you know, where all different, all meaningful differences get, get leveled. Yeah. So um, the question is, how do we engage with the world with this technology that is constantly threatening to obviate the need for skillfulness and we do fight it back naturally. So for example, if you take a, a record player, it was designed to just sit and listen to music. Never in a million years did the inventor of the record player imagine a DJ, you know, scratching records and like- Making it an instrument. Making it an instrument. Yeah. And the same with photography. It was meant to like, you don't need to like sit and learn how to paint, but people came along and did it better than other people. And, and then Photoshop came along and said, oh, you don't need to do the darkroom anymore. And like, you can just do this, but now people are really good at Photoshop. And so the, we keep, it's this kind of like uh, uh, tortoise in the hare race of kind yeah. of like the technology being fast and trying to just make us all the same and make everything equally accessible and uh, accessible everywhere. And, and us having this very deep human uh, desire to engage meaningfully and to make ourselves uh, unique and and so a lot of my life has been kind of uh, uh, kind of struggling with that idea both in explicitly and implicitly. Yeah, you you definitely have a way of engaging with everything that I've seen you do so far, whether it's the the festival or the way you organize a home or a party, or your friends, lovers, those sort of things are very communicative. You've got like a, a it's a, it's a very apparent value for the skillfulness involved in communicating properly and, and effectively and honestly, which leads me to sexuality, your most recent film, Monogamish, which uh, I've not yet seen. Uh, I'm familiar with the premise, and I've uh, kind of looked over the book the other day, which is it's just beautiful. A lot of um, very insightful people talking about something that's so ingrained in humanity. Yeah, Sex. it's like the first time I had a, 
a film that you know that that really applies to everyone. I mean, flamenco everyone. is an obscure niche, and Heidegger is even more obscure. And like, <laughs> I've always liked these things that are like you know pretty specific and pretty you know narrow in their focus. And then uh, I got divorced after like you know the eight years of marriage, and and uh, I've always used filmmaking as a kind of way of doing real philosophical and psychological exploration mm -hmm. of like what's going on and how do I, you know, deal with the fact that like my, I had a lot of drug, drug addiction in my family. So that's how the, what was, how the film fix was born. It was mm -hmm. like kind of contending with that. And then my divorce really left me kind of reeling and, and I, I didn't know what had hit me. And, and I, 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 so I picked up my camera. It was like my, my first instinct. And I had this neighbor named Roberta. She was like the 75 year old, eccentric, wonderful, stylish lady with a 40 year old boyfriend and <laughs> just really cool sense of style and, and attitude and, you know, talking explicitly about sex and relationships. And, and so I, I would go at like five in the morning when I couldn't sleep and I would see her window from my window you could see her window like across the alley in venice beach and so i'd go over and have coffee with her and she would give me her wisdom and her advice and yeah. and uh and so i turned that into a sh i thought like, i have to make a short film about this woman she's amazing and uh, i made a little 10 minute film about her called the love project episode one and uh because i thought it, this could then become a series and sure. i showed it to my friend and mentor uh oliver stone and and he was like oh this is really good like you should do something more with this and and suddenly it occurred to me that maybe i could make a whole feature film exploring questions of like why does monogamy exist as an ideal why does marriage exist as an institution what is the relationship between economics and sexuality and and history and religion and patriarchy and i mean it's just like i realized like Every, at first I had a kind of snobber, snobby attitude like oh relationships like that's so you know kind of like almost too accessible or too like banal in a way mm -hmm. but instead I realized that no matter which angle you attacked it from it was a uh, uh, you know you could write a PhD thesis on just any one of these questions yes. uh, so I ended up spending like four years like traveling around the world and and I went to a free love commune in Portugal. And and then one of my heroes in life, I've, I've, I've always had a lot of heroes like like that I've looked up to. If having a father that was very far away kind of made me kind of lionize and romanticize, you know, especially older men. Mm -hmm. And because uh, my father was much older too. And, and uh, so I would like, you know, Professor Dreyfus at Berkeley became like the, the inspiration for being in the world. And he was kind of a, a father figure type mentor type and uh and and the other person i'd looked up to for many years was dan savage who coined the word monogamish and i discovered him when i was at uc berkeley there was you know he was syndicated in the weekly papers uh with his like kind of really uh offbeat uh sex advice column mm -hmm. and uh so I, i'd been reading him for like 20 years religiously and just I'd always been curious about his opinions on on sexuality and you know being a gay man and and kind of applying his uh kind of slightly naturally rebellious uh attitudes towards mm -hmm. these questions of ordinary couples and so I wrote him a kind of very naive letter saying oh uh you know I've just you know I've been reading you for a long time and I, I have this idea to make a movie and you should be in it and we should call it monogamish and 
uh, and I got a you know no response, and I was like, okay, I'll try again like a few months later, and and I get a like kind of cold email from his agent or publicist or something saying you know uh, he's he's busy and you're gonna have to change the name because he's actually trademarked the word monogamish and i was like ah oh, fuck like okay so then i called the movie monogamy and it's discontents after <laughs> after freud's civilization and it's discontents yeah. and i met christopher ryan mm-hmm. uh who uh wrote that amazing book sex at dawn and and we got along well right away and he gave me a fabulous interview and so he wrote to Dan Savage saying, uh, you know, how's a nice guy and you know, this looks like an you know, interesting project. You should Yeah. And again, like I kind of you know, I think he's very busy, obviously. And then and then I had an early cut of the film and then finally Christopher wrote to Dan saying you need to be in this movie not for Tao, but for you too. Like, there's all the great people, like Esther Perel, and uh, you know, so many interesting like luminaries in in the field. And and so finally, after like three years, Dan Savage showed up at my house in Venice Beach, and we sat down and had this like tete a tete for like two hours and talked, and and uh, and he became like the backbone of the film. And you know, I've. Just again, tremendous respect for his his work and his insights and and his humor and his uh, his his just his attitude about all these things is wonderful. And in the process of making the film, I realized I kind of really resonated philosophically and politically with the ideas of kind of alternate relationship models <laughs> and uh, alternatives to monogamy. And I I realized that you know, monogamy is not the only way. And there are more and more people kind of exploring in a really, you know, thoughtful way, uh, not just a reckless, like, oh, uh, you know, I just want to do what I want. I mean, you know, maybe there's, obviously there's, there are, there's so much of, of everything in all of these questions, right? Yes. Like yes. Uh, we could get super, you know, psychoanalytical and realize how much of our, childhoods uh enter into it or we get super political and see right. how you know the the powers that be benefit from you know the, the monogamous marriage yeah. uh model and uh it, no matter how you attack this uh, it, you're going to get different answers and and depending also on your own predispositions mm-hmm. so but i think the film did a good job at least what i've been told in kind of unpacking these things without like leaning too heavily on one uh you know solution because if there was one solution someone would have figured it out before me I, so I that might be the problem is that one solution has been preferred you know like monogamy here's your solution yeah that's and i think the, now that's changing and, yeah. and it's constantly changing people always think like the way they it is now is the way it's always been and always will be and all you have to do is just look back 30 years or 20 years and and see the difference and yeah, or look from one culture to another from one country to another and mm-hmm. you can see how historically uh contingent and culturally contingent all of these things are and the best we can hope for is to have a constantly evolving dialogue and to have like the tools which is what i think the film does is give you the tools to talk about these things in an honest way yeah that's what like uh, to my to my point of the communicative sort of nature of what you're doing uh i mean my wife and i've been together for the most part for about 18 years mm-hmm. we met on my 21st birthday oh wow and uh you know we're, we've got a monogamous thing going and it's um, you know, our own sexuality notwithstanding, but uh, it's not a problem. Monogamy is not an issue for us, but I 
I love the idea of people exploring whatever it's going to be for them, you know, whether they're bisexual or however they want to engage with the world. I know from my own experience to continue to be in a monogamous, monogamous relationship with the same person for that long a period of time, the amount of communication necessary is substantial. And that's no other partners. That's just yeah. the two of us, you know? No, it's, it's absolutely. And I, I went to this free love commune and met this amazing, beautiful older woman named Frida. And she was just radiant and, and wise and just wonderful. And she, and she uh, is just was railing against monogamy for herself for like, you know, she realized at a young age that she wanted to be able to have anonymous encounters and multiple encounters and how she had different, different encounters with different people brought out different parts of her. And, and then I said, well, what about people who you know i thought i was going to have a gotcha moment you know when i was like people who have been together for 20 years and they they love each other and they only want to be with each other and i expected her to have some like answer of like how that's not really the best thing and she's like i think that's fantastic i think that's wonderful when they have that like i feel so happy for them and everything and 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 so we don't you know i don't think anybody wants people not to have that but it's it's just should be uh, it shouldn't just be the de facto and only way yeah. to engage meaningfully with other people. And as you meet people who have are on the same page, um, if you're able to have a conversation openly about it, you can figure out like, oh, this is what we want, and 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 then it can be even more authentic. Yeah, I definitely got the vibe from just looking at the book and talking to you. It, to, to properly communicate with someone, you can't have judgment sitting there. You know, like your friend Frida wasn't judging the monogamous. Yeah. You know, so then in that lack of judgment, you have access to real communication. Yeah. If you start off with a bias or a judgment, it's, you're fucked. You can't, you can't talk about anything and really learn anything or give anything because yeah. you've got your mind made up. That's no, right. I do think, yeah, I, I think monogamy is a, a beautiful thing. I've, I've engaged in monogamously for many, many years. And now, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been trying this other way and there are pros and cons to each. And yeah. like I said, there's not one, one, you know, cure all, yeah, uh, each, each way of engaging and, uh, you know, sexually and romantically and, you know, emotionally is, is, uh, going to bring out different parts of who you are and also have its own pitfalls. And yeah, <laughs> well, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but yesterday was your birthday. So happy birthday again. Thank you. Uh, and at the party, I uh, very presumptuously asked friends of yours to kind of give me their take, whatever it was they wanted to say about you. And they were recording things. And I'll, I'm just I'm only going to share one of them right now that I thought was just fucking hilarious. Uh, a young lady said, yeah, I'll tell you a story about Tao. He's got a joint. and He likes to have a lot of sex. <laughs> End of story. And that was it. That's all she said. <laughs> I thought that funny. was so sweet because she wasn't, you know, it was like a, a playful sassiness about yeah. it. You know, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was hip. I really enjoyed that. That's funny. Uh, um, uh, yeah, your, your friends love you, man. And uh, I, I love you. I've just, just met you and I'm, I'm enamored of your way of life. Um, we, we've been traveling around meeting people and seeing these worlds that people built. Uh, yours in particular I'm just going to kiss your ass for just a brief moment. But the world that you have built and are building, um, it doesn't seem like it's just for your indulgence. You know, it's maybe not that everyone we've seen is doing that by any means, but yours seems like um, skillfulness, as you mentioned, for the benefit of 
everyone. Anyone that comes into your world, people that don't even you know necessarily get to come here, you're building something that's uh, it's going to be a tool for others later, which I think is a is a worthy worthy pursuit. I hope so. I mean, and and the the two don't uh, oppose each other. Like you can, you know, I I love. When 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 my friend Mark Rathall, the professor, came to visit me, I just you know got this place like two miles up a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. Uh, he had this like kind of long look on his face, very worried, and and uh, I said, "You don't like it?" And he said, "You know, Tao, I don't see you like living up all alone in the dirt road, like so isolated. You're such a people person and everything." Mm-hmm. And and uh, he was like genuinely concerned, and that was two years ago, and. I've had a total of like 11 nights alone here in two years <laughs> and I've had this constant stream of people and 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 it's amazing as more than I had in LA as far as and the the the, the connections that I have are even more meaningful because when people come here that's they, they stay for They've a while made the trek and yeah. it's not like oh uh, you know it's looking at their watch after like 30 minutes uh, like I have to go to my next appointment and uh, so it's it's it ends up being great for for everyone involved. Like I don't have to be up here all alone, twiddling my thumbs, wondering what's happening, and and people show up, and we have meaningful like yeah. dialogues and interact. And I, I I always thought of myself as an urban person. Like I just assumed that you want to be in a city surrounded by by people and by projects and like just action. And I find that being up here, uh, you know, now we're gonna we've been like building this. Uh, <laughs> this bathtub platform uh, uh, i was trying to raise my bathtub yesterday and andrew had the idea of putting it on rocks and which never occurred to me and uh we we, we lifted it up and now you're gonna craft a uh, some steps going up to it and this is a perfect example of like skillful engagement with the with the material with the wood with the rocks with each other and it was so so we have this amazing confluence of mm-hmm nature and community and skillfulness and it's it's not there was never a a sense of like selfishness or altruism it's just a meaningful way of engaging with life that that hopefully makes our lives all of our lives better and i think whether it's a making a movie or or uh, building a a step to a bathtub or doing a a podcast or making a festival in a weird little town like uh or playing music all of these things are just uh attempts at engaging meaningfully with the world and using this these processes as ways of like having meaningful connections with each other and and hopefully you know think more deeply about what's going on well said thank you so much Thank you.
Tiffany here, saying thank you for listening to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you haven't already, or it's been a while, check out our website, mtp.dog. There's plenty of information there. An About tab with a little bio on Andrew, myself, and our dog Pele. There's also a Van Build tab, detailing how we did our van conversion. A Journal tab, and we, as an Andrew, are doing our best to keep that up to date. And last but not least, a contact tab, where you can leave your thoughts, suggestions, or questions. You can also contact us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you would like to donate and or subscribe to the cause, you can go to Patreon and GoFundMe at Monkey Tooth Podcast. Patreon is not just a place to subscribe. We post lots of content there as well. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Love to all. Thank you.